Hi everyone, welcome back to season five, the first thousand years or so of Jewish history. For the last few episodes, we've been talking about the Near East before the Israelites arrived on the scene, how the Mesopotamian cultures of Sumer, Assyria, and Babylon influenced the Israelites, and how Egypt's struggle to dominate the land of Canaan made space for the people of Israel to emerge. How they emerged is a matter of great debate. The Israelites themselves tell a compelling story, that as a unified group of former slaves from Egypt, they invaded Canaan and took it over. It's summed up in a famous scene in the Hebrew Bible. The warrior Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, leads them in a siege against the city of Jericho, the city I mentioned in the first episode of this season, one of the oldest cities in Israel. Jericho's strong walls seemed impossible to breach, but with pomp and circumstance and the mighty blowing of horns, the walls came tumbling down and the city was sacked. This the Israelites repeated throughout Canaan until all the cities and all the land had been delivered to their hands. Now this is a great story, but when archaeologists went digging, they looked for a layer of destruction from the time period that the Israelites would have destroyed the city. They didn't find one. Indeed, throughout Canaan, archaeologists came up largely empty for a widespread military campaign by a great and powerful people. Instead, the Israelite conquest, such as it were, looked to scholars like a gradual and generally peaceful settlement that slowly transitioned the land from the Canaanites to the Israelites. It seems like a minor argument, but it completely blew up and still inspires emotions today. Because each of these narratives that of conquest or that of settlement, tell an entirely different story about who these Israelites were, where they came from, and why, and therefore, the origins of the Jewish people. Most scholars today come down pretty definitively on the idea of the gradual settlement, not the military conquest as is told in the Bible. What this means is that, rather than being a single coherent group from the start, the Israelites were the product of various people, ideas, and cultures who found each other and slowly developed a unified national identity. So that's today's episode. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. <laughs> I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. First things first, everyone. Exciting new development here at Jew I Don't Know. For the first time ever, I am set up to accept donations. Now you can be part of this unique cultural and educational project, putting the entire history of the Jewish people in podcast form, and getting your name listed on my website. Simply go to my website, jewoutonow.com and click on the donate page in the top right hand corner or just scroll down to the bright orange donate button. No amount is too small nor any amount too high and any and all donations will be greatly, greatly appreciated by me. Thank you. Now back to our story. So we've got a bit of a conundrum thanks to the Hebrew Bible. The biblical authors make the case for this unified group of Israelites who had divided themselves into 12 tribes and then conquered the land of Canaan. They originally came out of Egypt as slaves liberated by Moses. Just before invading the promised land, they divided up the territory amongst each tribe. And then, in a nasty, ruthless, and frankly genocidal military campaign, they sacked the major Canaanite cities, 
executed the various Canaanite kings, and massacred most of the Canaanites they found. And then each tribe settled into its allotted territory. So why do we care about this story and about getting it right? There are two reasons why this conquest narrative is so important. One, it explains how the Israelites ended up in Canaan. But more importantly, it tells the story of how Israel became a nation. The Israelites claim that with the conquest, our national story really began in the land. This tale of conquest is really complex, and we know that lots of it aren't historically true. But we also can't say with any certainty what really did happen. The past, in this case, is obscure. There are many theories. For every one idea, you have scholars lined up against it, and on and on you'll go, like I did, until you realize that it might be better to just spend your Saturday afternoons playing video games. So I did. But here's the overarching problem. The Hebrew Bible says a huge military conquest took place, but we can say with a high degree of certainty that that didn't really happen. We can also say with a lot of confidence that the tale of 12 unified tribes rallying together to defeat the Canaanites is also inaccurate. Instead, most scholars believe that it was only much later, after Canaan had already been settled by the Israelites, that the tribes came together as a single entity. You can see why this presents all kinds of issues, especially emotional ones. If the Israelite national story didn't really begin the way they said it did, but instead happened another way, then how might that change our conception of things like identity, religion, culture, and even modern politics? It's like finding out that there never really was an American Revolutionary War, and instead of defeating the British to secure the United States' independence, the king actually just sort of shrugged and said, yeah, whatever. The picture gets even more complicated because we do know that certain elements of this conquest narrative are accurate. There really was a huge surge of new people arriving in Canaan at roughly the time frame depicted in the Bible, and who turned out to be distinct from the Canaanites who were already there. And yet we know from last week's episode that it could not have been a huge group of Israelites coming from Egypt. As we determined, it was a very small group of people, who weren't even yet Israelites, who escaped slavery in Egypt, made their way to Canaan, settled with the Israelites who were already there, and became accepted as one of them. They became one of the tribes, the tribe of Levi. Okay, so, the Hebrew Bible says a military campaign organized by 12 tribes of Israelites conquered Canaan sometime before the year 1200 BCE. We know that the Israelites were indeed there at this time, and that they did displace the Canaanites. But we also know that it wasn't a big military conquest. So, who then were the Israelites, and how did they end up in Canaan? You can thank me later, but let me spare you all the nitty-gritty archaeological details to just make a couple of broad points. The Book of Joshua lists all these Canaanite cities that had been conquered by the Israelites. And if that were true, we should expect to find in each city a layer of destruction dated to about that time period, 1200 BC or so. Now, some ancient cities do have such a layer, but most don't. And a bunch of the cities listed in Joshua weren't even occupied in 1200 BCE, which would not have made for much of a glorious conquering. Even just based on that evidence alone, it seemed the conquest was very unlikely to have happened like it says in Joshua. 
And the second big piece is that if the conquest had occurred and the Israelites were coming from somewhere else into Canaan, you would expect to find, around 1200 BCE, a sudden huge shift in material culture. Imagine if a couple million Californians suddenly moved to the English countryside. In a thousand years, archaeologists would be digging up surfboards, decent Mexican food, and texts in which English words were spelled correctly. But when archaeologists dug up these supposedly conquered cities, they found that the culture that pushed out the Canaanites looked pretty much like the Canaanites. They didn't find hordes of Egyptian tools, clothing, and architecture that the Israelites would have brought with them. When archaeologists put all this together some decades ago, it threw the whole field of biblical studies into disarray. Because it wasn't enough to just say the conquest never happened like in the Bible. Now you had to develop theories about where these Israelites came from. The answer seems to be that they didn't really come from anywhere else. They had been in Canaan all along. Most Israelites were probably an offshoot of the Canaanites themselves, another branch on the big family tree. In short, a bunch of different peoples came together in the mountainous highlands of Canaan, what today is the West Bank, Jerusalem, and the surrounding area. One group was this escaped clan of runaway Egyptian slaves we talked about last episode, who had experienced the famous exodus and were indeed outsiders. Another group of people you sometimes hear about are the people whom the Egyptians call the Apiru, or Habiru. Habiru sounds an awful lot like Hebrew, and many people saw that as very much not a coincidence. But it seems that the term Habiru wasn't a direct reference to the Israelites, but instead a kind of catch-all term for people living on the margins of society throughout the Near East. Outlaws and bandits and migrant peasants and servants. Lots of Egyptian, Canaanite kings and other rulers throughout the Near East complain of having to deal with them, or of having made deals with them. So while the Habiru people as a whole did not become Israelites, it's entirely possible that groups of them in Canaan were at some point absorbed into what became Israelite society. But most of the other people who suddenly appeared in the central highlands to take up residence were probably Canaanite farmers and nomads coming in from the rural areas. It was around this time that better water storage technology was employed, large cisterns that were dug into the ground and sealed off to collect rainwater. More water meant you could have more people living there, and so these urban settlements grew, attracting more people. A classic migration from the rural hinterlands to the opportunities of the big city and the nightlife in 12th century BCE was, according to historians, exhilarating. The Hebrew Bible preserves this process in its extensive genealogical lists, long recitations of which tribe was in which area and how they got there and from whom they were descendant and who got married and who their kids were and so on and so on. The Israelites were amongst the only peoples in the Near East to record such details. And if you know your Hebrew Bible, then you know that birthrights play an important role. The process by which the oldest son received the family's inheritance, which often meant land. Think about it this way. There's a family living in a small town. The oldest son inherits the family's plot of land. But then the next sibling gets married, and now land has to be acquired for that family too. So a plot is built next door. Then the third child gets married, and another plot is needed. Eventually the town is bursting at the seams, so if there are other children waiting in the wings or other situations arrived, they get moved down the road to start a new town. 
The process repeats over and over again as each tribe slowly expands its territory as the population grows. Several of these central tribes spread east towards the Jordan River and into what is today the country of Jordan. Gradually over time then, as these various peoples came to live with and amongst each other, they developed a distinct identity of their own from the mainstream Canaanite culture. Instead of a great military conquest, it's a gradual process of gentrification, as the Canaanites are pushed out as this distinct Israelite culture moves in and settles. Or maybe doesn't even need to push the Canaanites out, for the newcomers start marrying the current residents, and these identities get blended together, and it's not so much that the Canaanites get pushed out as they fade out. And in fact, the Israelites preserved some significant aspects of Canaanite culture and then adapted them to serve their own needs. And one of them is something that you and I and everyone else still use every single day. Out in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula, the desert landscape in between Canaan and Egypt, today Israel and Egypt, was once located an Egyptian turquoise mine. For a thousand years, the Egyptians had been carving the precious stone from the rock, backbreaking and difficult work for the workers who toiled there. And sometime around the year 1800 BCE, about 600 years before the Israelites came on the scene, a small group of Canaanite workers there, or maybe it was even just one person, completely changed human history. Near the mine was an Egyptian temple to the goddess Hathor, the divine entity associated with turquoise. Hieroglyphs adorned the temple complex, recording offerings and rituals and pleadings for the hope of a good haul of stone. The Canaanite workers, immigrant laborers who had come to Egypt in search of good jobs, watched all this and wanted to participate, but on their own terms and with their own gods. And so they did something wholly innovative and downright extraordinary. Instead of using the Egyptian hieroglyphs, this group of Canaanites instead carved simpler signs based not on pictures, like a hieroglyph, but on the sounds of their language. That is, they invented the alphabet. Remember Flinders Petrie from the first episode? His team found the Merneptah Stele, the first mention of the word Israel in 1208 BCE, Flinders and his wife Hilda found at the site of this temple in the Sinai a small sphinx in which can be seen tiny letters scratched onto its surface. They were Semitic lettering, not Egyptian hieroglyphs, and labeled the little sphinx as the Beloved of Balat, a Canaanite goddess. If you're doing any reading or writing with Roman letters today, you can trace it all back to these poor migrant Canaanite mine workers who invented the alphabet out in the middle of nowhere. It totally blows my mind. I wish we could dwell on this for a bit because it's just a fascinating story with a lot of moving pieces and, frankly, a lot of scholarly debate that I summed up very quickly. But the point of this, for our purposes, is that over the next centuries, this alphabet made its way around the Semitic-speaking world of the Near East, eventually, of course, getting taken up by the Israelites. They took this Semitic alphabet and over time evolved it into a script we call Paleo-Hebrew, the earliest written form of the Hebrew language. For close to the next thousand years, the Israelites would use Paleo-Hebrew to write their Hebrew language, a direct line of continuity with the Canaanite culture that they eventually overtook. 
Hebrew remains the only Canaanite language still spoken today, a reminder of the deep Jewish past in this part of the world. Now that's just one story. There's a lot more we can say about the influence of Canaanite culture on the Israelites, but let's return to the conquest, or the non-conquest, as it most likely was. Rather than a great military campaign by outsiders, there's every reason to believe that the Israelites were Canaanites, who settled in the hill country around the 1200s and gradually developed a distinct identity of their own. Now while this process was gradual and largely peaceful, it probably wasn't without conflict here and there. And so it's possible that there were the occasional violent clashes, which, when later recorded in the book of Joshua, became the basis for some of the claims of having conquered this or that Canaanite city. But otherwise, we can ask why the biblical writers chose to write a different story than the real history that occurred. Why does the book of Joshua present the Israelites as outsiders who ruthlessly annihilated the native Canaanites? By today's standards, it's an enormously uncomfortable way to look at Jewish history. So why tell this story? By the time this conquest narrative was fleshed out, it was at least several hundred years removed from the actual events. By then, the Israelites were well-established in what was now called Israel. They were the dominant power, much more so than the Canaanites. But without the kind of historical preservation that we take for granted today, they may not have had the facts about where their system of 12 tribes came from where they were before arriving in Canaan, and how they ended up displacing the natives. They had some scraps of preserved memories, like around the exodus from Egypt, or, as I just mentioned, perhaps some violent clashes with Canaanite cities. So they constructed in the Bible a wider story that answered why each tribe had its own territory, why there was the ruins of an old Canaanite city down the road, and perhaps, most importantly, why they were distinct and separate from the Canaanites why they were in the land, and no longer were the Canaanites. The fancy word for this is etiology. It's a story written to explain something we're familiar with, but don't understand the origins. The Israelites didn't bear any particular ill will towards the Canaanites at this point, but neither did they want to be associated with them. The Hebrew Bible is chock full of warnings not to intermarry with Canaanites, lest the Israelite line be tainted. And so they needed to tell a story that set them apart from the Canaanites. And that's why Abraham and Sarah, the patriarch and matriarch, were said to have come from Ur in Mesopotamia, arriving in Canaan only on God's orders and with the promise of establishing a great peoplehood there. It's why the Hebrew Bible so often has the second son end up the winner, even though the oldest son is due the birthright of the inheritance, like Jacob and Esau or Isaac and Ishmael, the Israelites knew that the Canaanites had been there first, so the Israelites understood themselves as the younger sons who eventually end up on top, a neatly wrapped justification of the reality they saw around them. In short, the story of the conquest isn't intended as a story about historical facts. It's intended as a story about how the Israelite God fulfilled the promise to Abraham that the Israelites would inherit the land. But by the way, that promise is dependent on the Israelites upholding their end of the bargain, that is, to worship only God and to follow God's laws, a message that the biblical writers wanted to convey to their readers. So above all, this is a story about how the Israelites understood themselves to be distinct from the Canaanites, 
how they took deep memories and old traditions and reworked them into a storyline that made sense, that explained the world around them, and that would, most importantly, feel relevant to the people now reading it. People who believed themselves as having descended from slaves in Egypt, to be endowed with the love of the God of the universe, and on his blessing, living as a nation of free people in the promised land. So speaking of God, we've established that the Israelites were originally Canaanites. They therefore preserved, as we would expect, much of Canaanite culture, from language to architecture to clothing and all kinds of other stuff that the archaeologists have discovered over the years. But not, unfortunately, decent Mexican food. So it's only natural to think that the Israelites would have preserved the Canaanite gods too, right? And so they did. But wait. You're telling me that can't possibly be, because we all know that Jews are monotheistic. They believe in only one God. But if it's true that they recognize the Canaanite gods, and it's true that the Jews now have their own monotheistic God, then what happened to the Canaanite gods? And maybe most importantly, if the Israelites are originally from Canaan, then shouldn't their national God also be from Canaan? Because if he's not, then how did he get there? Well, it turns out, he hitchhiked. So that'll be next episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lehitraot, and a free coffee mug to whoever can spell that in Paleo-Hebrew. Just kidding. But don't forget to donate at my website, jewidonno.com. Talk to you next time. See ya.